So real quick, I wanted to make a couple of announcements, and then uh, we'll get into the sermon this morning. But first of all, I'm glad that you're here and glad we have this opportunity to worship with our God this morning. So over the, the weekend, we got a report, at least some of us did, with regard to um, Frank Walton's work that he's gone over to um, Kenya, Africa. And he had made um, a request because of a situation that is there with one of these congregations. This is a congregation in Kenya where the church meets. And just now that we've got a projector, you can actually see color and everything like that. You get to see um, there's this window and when storms come by it just the rain just comes in it actually wets all the brethren there i mean brethren get soaking wet up from the way the report was made as well as the ground gets all muddy because it's no not paved it's just dirt and so this is just some of the situation that is here um in this congregation this is a bunch of preachers that came for this meeting so one day with preachers that another day just men another day just women another day just for children um during this time when they were meeting there but the reason why I'm sharing that with you is because um, this request had come to us, and then Janice Kud had, had asked the elders and, and wants to know if the congregation would be able to, on an individual basis or as a congregation, to help this congregation in having its needs supplied because they don't have the means. And just as a real quick reference, anytime I've gone out of the country and I go to some of these congregations, many of which in third world nations, if you have one or two dollars worth, like U.S. dollars in the plate, that is pretty much the extent of an entire congregation's contribution. And so here's the request, and you're going to see why they're not able to fulfill their own needs. This is what they were able to do. But according to Frank Walton, if they were to actually get flooring and windows and labors and everything done, it's about $3,200. And so the request is if we can help in that endeavor. This is not a request from the brethren there, by the way. It's a request that has been passed on from Frank Walton on their behalf, and it would be um, a great blessing for them. Here's where we are. Think about it. This projector costs a lot more than their screen, let alone this machine right over here, let alone the parking lot. You see what I'm saying? We got so many blessings. We talked about them. Ben's talked about this morning with the prayer about the monies that we use for the, the souls. And here we have an opportunity where we can help our brothers and sisters in Christ who are sharing the gospel of Jesus in this part of the world. And so if you are moved in your heart that you want to help in this cause, I'm trying to talk to Ben before, but you're busy, Ben. Um, See Ben or see the elders and, and hand them the monies, and we'll make sure that Frank gets the, the money that he can help with the church there in Kenya. So that's one. Um, before I get into that, the second thing is that, um, as was announced this morning, we had mentioned, or Don had mentioned, because I told him, he said, uh, I said, the first Saturday in November, I think it's November 4th, and so he presented November 4th. It's actually November 2nd is a Saturday, and confirming with Ben, November 2nd, right? That's when we're going to be passing out these coats um, when we go to the housing authority. So if you are able to make it, this is, I think, our sixth or seventh year, not there at the housing authority, but since we've been doing this um, individually, if you will. And so I wanted that to, um, to be made known as well. The last thing, and this is just the most exciting for me, I think I have fulfilled my work here at Franklin. I feel accomplished. Phil learned something. <laughs> I mean, isn't it awesome? <laughs> you can rejoice that brethren who are older like Phil can learn. 
So I just, I'm just, I feel good. So, all right. So this morning, as we are looking at this concept of being witnesses, uh, I've actually plagiarized not the, the, the sermon, but the title to the sermon. And then I, thinking that I had plagiarized the sermon because I heard this on a podcast, um, Julie says, wait, that's a song, Mitch. Can I get a witness? I did not know that. And so unbeknownst to me, even in the podcast, they played the song, but I don't pay attention to that, the song, so I didn't realize. So this is going to be playing off of um, that title, and it's a very important subject matter that almost 30 years of preaching, I never considered this subject matter in light of the gospel, right? I've made points about it, but never focused in on a sermon. And when you see the layout of some of these passages, I may not have done the best job um, since it's the first time I'm really studying on this, but I thought it very prominent in scripture that we deal with it from a standpoint of what we've been talking about recently in the sermons. And so I want to start by asking you to kind of think what the way or the way that we use this word today, witness. And it seems to me that most often when we look at the word witness and we hear this word, we think of it in a real legal, judicial fashion, right? And so we had this guy or gal, they got their hand on the Bible, they're being sworn in um, as a witness to testify about something, whether it's in a neutral way of simply just presenting information or because they have seen an event or they witnessed an experience and now they're having to recount it to represent that event, that situation, that experience. And so this is the way we typically use the word witness. What's interesting is even in modern history, I'm saying modern history because our history is pretty much very, very shallow, very uh, in light of world history, very minimal, if you will. But we actually use the word witness in a variety of contexts. All right. So one of the ones that we're familiar with is this idea of when you sign your name on a dotted line, that paper is a witness. Like, how can a paper? A paper can't talk. A paper does not have eyes. That's the reason why I put the bulletin article this morning um, for us to ponder about how this concept of witness is actually biblical from, from very early in scripture. But we see it from a standpoint of that where that paper, including that notary signature, serves as a witness, right? Or the Statue of Liberty, even if it's meant for, um, from a, a memorial standpoint and maybe some symbolism that's involved, in one sense, over time, it bore witness to immigrants that were coming across the waters to this country. And what's interesting about that was there is a woman, Emma Lazarus, she's a, a poet, and back in the late 1800s, she had written this poem, and it says, give me your tired, your poor, your, your huddled masses yearning to be free. And one of her good friends decided that was very telling of all the immigrants coming into this country and hid it in the Statue of Liberty. And about four decades later, I think in the late 30s or so, 19, uh, 1930s, um, early 1940, in that time, the prominence of that poet, um, that poem, was such where they decided to put that on a huge um, plaque outside in front at the base of the Statue of Liberty, to which it's there, if my understanding is correct, today. 
And it bears witness to the concept that we used to have. I think our, our ways of thinking about this phrase is very different today in light of our views on immigration today. But the view that we had with regard to immigration is this country was founded upon immigrants, right? That were wanting freedom. Those were poor, those were tired of, of the things that were going on from that European base that they came from. Well, that's a testimony. You have the Declaration of Independence, right? All these men and the painting, not just the signature of the Declaration of Independence, but the painting that serves as a testimony, serves as a witness to the event that had taken place. So there's a variety of ways in which this concept is used even in our own modern American history. Well, let's go to biblical history. I think this is where it gets really, really cool, kind of fun at times um, to think of, and in some cases, even gross. So if you'll notice, here's this hill over here known as Gilead. It's one of a number of mountains in this region called Gilead or Gilead. And this is about the general area in which that we just had read or um, Jordan. yeah, Jordan read for us. <laughs> Sorry, I always remember Jordan until I don't. <laughs> anyway, Jordan read for us that passage of scripture and, and that's the area where Abraham is meeting with them and, and to make that, that announcement, excuse me. Uh, Jacob, excuse me. And so what you have further is this concept over here, where you've got pillars that are made. And whether it's in Genesis 21 or Genesis 31, of which was read this morning, pillars were also used where people would take these rocks and they would set it up. They would pile up these stones and it became a witness for and or against the parties involved in a covenant. And they would remember because each individual that took that rock placed it there and they serve as a witness, each rock per person. Or they would take these lambs, right? In the case that was read for us, seven ewe lambs. So all of these are things that are places or things or animals, not humans. You see, just as a by um, like a sidebar type statement, at some point in early history, we did not have the written language. We didn't have contract forms. These were the equivalent of our notarized contracts that we write and have stamps. That's how it was used. And so these objects stood for something very, very telling. And what's, what's very interesting about these things is that many times they were personified, right? They were... The objects are used as human beings, like as if the objects could see, you know, that these objects serve as witnesses. And so you'll read that many, many times in scripture. And that's really, really cool about that. I want us to actually look at Genesis 21. I want to look at some of these passages, particularly Deuteronomy 25. And I want you to open your Bibles, kind of see some of these points that give us these quote unquote weird witnesses and just how amazing they are, actually are in serving this concept when we get into the biblical narrative. That is when we tell the story of the Bible through this word, all right? So Genesis chapter 21, I want us to read um, the text over here and see how this word is being used. 
All right, so we get into Genesis chapter 21. I'm going to back up to verse 22 and then read through 30. It came to pass at that time Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, spoke to Abraham, saying, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me that you will not deal falsely with me, with my offspring or with my posterity, but that according to the kindness that I have done to you, you will do to me and to the land in which you dwell. Abraham said, I swear. Then Abraham rebuked Abimelech because of a well of water which Abimelech's servants had seized. And Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You didn't tell me, nor had I heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two of them made a covenant. And Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock by themselves. So you got all these animals over here, and then he sets off seven of these ewe lambs over here. And then he says, what is the meaning of this, Abimelech says to Abraham, that you set these seven ewe lambs by themselves? And Abraham said in verse 30, you will take these seven ewe lambs from my hand, that they may be witness that I have dug this well. Think about that. There are a lot of people in this gathering, not just Abraham and Abimelech. And they're all listening to this conversation. And at the end of the day, after these seven ewe lambs are set apart, that have been given to Abimelech, anytime people would look at those seven ewe lambs that would grow up, they would remember that conversation. And that those lambs themselves serve as witness. When you fast forward to Genesis 31, that mountain was used and these pillars were used. And you have Laban saying, irony, here's another irony um, as compared to the one that we were speaking of this morning. Laban fraudulently takes advantage of Jacob for 20 years, right? And then tells him the audacity, saying, You've dealt falsely with me. You took my daughters, you took my sons, you took my grandchildren, you took my stuff. Very interesting about that. And he says, I want us to set up a covenant agreement. And we're going to use these rocks. And we're going to use this hill, this mound. And they're going to serve as witnesses, the rocks and these things, so that if we're out of each other's sight, we cannot see each other and our dealings with one another, these rocks, this heap here, and this mound here will serve as witness. Or we get into other types of witnesses. Imagine your shoe serving as witness. All right? So go to Deuteronomy 25. This is where you get into the story of, of Ruth, right? Later on in the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 4. But that comes from this law here in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And I want to read the law here because I, at sometimes it seems like from our vantage point, the Bible can be super funny. This is one of those moments, gross and funny in, in this case. So kids, listen carefully. I think you'll like this. All right. If brothers dwell together, verse 5, Deuteronomy 25. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger outside the family. 
Okay, that's weird for us, right? Her husband's brother shall go into her, take her as wife, perform the duty of a husband's brother. Again, culturally, just kind of wacky for us, but this is the law that is given. And it shall be that the firstborn son which she bears will succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. But if the man does not want to take his brother's wife, let his brother's wife go up to the gate of the elders and say to the elders, that is, my husband's brother refuses to raise up a name to his brother in Israel. Serious matter here. Very serious matter. He will not perform the duty of my husband's brother. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. But if he stands firm and says, I do not want to take her, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and say, so shall it be to the man who will not build up his brother's house. Now, thousands of years later, right? At least 3,000 years ago, this, this is a law. 3,000 years later, we think, what a goofy law. Take his slipper, spit in his face. I mean, what kind of lunacy is that? But think about their culture. It's not like you can go to the local Walmart and get a new slipper, right? This is a big deal. Shoes for them, very big deal, very difficult to come by. There may even be a sense of status, the fact that you have shoes, all right? That's one. He'd be walking around with only one sandal on. And as funny as that seems to us, it was witness to everyone else. There is a sandalless man from the sandalless family. He refused to keep the law of Moses and to perform the duty of a dead brother, a dead brother's spouse. And so you've got that concept. And then the other is this. When you spit in someone's face, they become defiled. They become unclean. And that is also a huge deal, right? So here's the law. When you're unclean, you go outside the camp. And it would not be till later that night that that man could return, wash himself, present himself to um, the priest, and therefore be cleaned. That combination of, of being shoeless or sandalless and being spat upon, being defiled, was to be a witness to everyone that they would remember that day when that man did not fulfill the law of Moses. Okay? And so those are the kinds of witnesses that are being used in Scripture, and there's a lot more that we could have read about but these are some of the, the more fun ones, if you will, that we can get. Well, that's what you see in Ruth chapter 4, right? right? Boaz then eventually takes Ruth uh, to be his wife. But that's because there is this unnamed person that did not um, want to fulfill the law, and therefore he became unsandaled. Or how about this? When we think of the building up of the tabernacle... Right, the tabernacle is being built and all the instructions from Exodus 25 through 30, 35 through 40, you have all the instructions regarding the tabernacle. And over and over, it is referred to as the tabernacle of witness. In some of your translations, you have tabernacle of testimony. And some of your other English translations says tabernacle of witness. Interesting. Same Hebrew word, right? 
And that's what you have over and over and over. So here is this place, this tabernacle that's being built. It's the place where God would meet with the priests and where sacrifices took place and what have you. This is where God's dwelling place was. And every time there's this reference, tabernacle of testimony, tabernacle of witness. So the word testimony and witness overlap very, very closely associated with each other. Not only was there a tabernacle of witness, there's the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of the Witness or the Ark of the Testimony. So again, you read some of the more literal translations like New American Standard or American Standard, right, Jordan? And then you have the word witness. Some of the newer translations use the word testimony, right? And so you've got all these things. What does that mean? The Ark of Testimony, the Ark of Witness. Well, think about it. Whether it was these laws in number 17, where you have, remember um, Aaron's rod that budded? And after it had budded, the teaching was, hey, Moses, you make sure that Aaron puts that rod of the blossomed almond um, twigs or branches and put it in the ark of testimony. Let it sink in. It was going to serve as a witness of those who rebelled against God and against Moses in this particular instance. And there are other things that were placed in this Ark of the Testimony, like the Ten, the Ten Commandments, the tablets. That was placed in this Ark of Testimony, the Ark of Witness. You also have the manna that they had been gathering for the 40 years in the wilderness. That was placed, at least a portion of it, was placed in the Ark of Testimony. If that were ever opened up, they would remember, this is what God did for us. How he took us out of the land of Egypt, bore us on eagle's wings, right? And took us into the land of promise. It was going to be a testimony for them, let alone at times against them. So you have all these kinds of witnesses that are used throughout the Old Testament. Well, what does that mean then? So here's where the biblical story comes in. Remember how everything starts in the book of Genesis. That's what we've been studying on. In fact, at, at our assisted living, we're going to be getting into the study in about two, three weeks from now where we actually look at the story from Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 in particular, but also the first 11 chapters where all these themes, right? I wonder if, if, if Phil remembers the word that is used instead of the word theme. Hmm. <laughs> so we have these themes and within these themes, they play a story of the Bible from these different facets. So as you look at a diamond, and a diamond has all these different cuts, but it's the same one diamond, same thing. You have all these different facets of the same story being told from these different angles, if you will. And one of them is this concept of being a witness. So in the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, when God on the last day makes man, after he makes the animals earlier in the, the reading of Genesis 1, then you get to see man being made, and in verse 26, let us make man in our image. And what is he to do? If he's made in the image of God, he's going to bear the image of God to the rest of God's creation. And so man is going to be representing who the nature of God is to the rest of God's creation. Now, it doesn't say it explicitly, right? But it's not until you actually get this theme, this motif all throughout the scripture that gives you this hindsight to go back into Genesis and say, this is what God purposed. God purposed for man to be image bearers of him. 
Okay, so man is going to represent God from the very beginning, and that's what we're seeing here. And so this concept of witness, even though it's not explicit, it may be ambiguous at this point, it's still there. And then it, it gets a little bit clearer, although it's still ambiguous, when God sets these people who have not been image-bearing kind of people. So he sends the flood, and then he's going to separate this one group in the midst of all the world. Right? That's a whole contrast between Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, and Genesis 12, the nation of Israel, which is not yet a nation. It's just one man who is right now without child. Right? He's married. He's got a wife, but he has no one to have children with. Right now, I mean, his wife is not able to have children. So he's got this promise. In you, all families of the earth will be blessed. So he's separating this one family so that all families would be blessed. This one family is going to be an image-bearing representation of God. And so he's going to take his life experiences of his relationship with Jehovah, and he's going to share it with those around him so that people get to see how great and mighty this God is and all the world to worship him. We fast forward to when the promise is being fulfilled partially, if you will, where God then takes the descendants of Abraham, they become a fledgling nation in the land of Egypt, right? Small little nation, and they're growing, they're multiplying in Egypt until such a time that they are so oppressed that they cry out to God, and God, therefore, is going to send them out of that oppressed land of Egypt and deliver them and bring them into the promised land, just as God had promised to Abraham before. And here's the thing. God tells them in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6, that I'm going to make you a nation of priests. Now think of the role of a priest. We've studied this before. The role of a priest typically is to mediate between the people and God. This nation of Israel would be this role of mediating between the people of the world and God and showing the people of the world a relationship that they have with Yahweh, with Jehovah. They would be witnesses. Not only that, according to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses uh, 5 and 6, this nation would serve as God's wisdom to all the world. The world would see that the laws that they have, the type of lives that they live, if idealized and fulfilled through the Israelites, they would serve as witnesses to the remainder of the world so that the world, again, as God purposed from the very beginning in Genesis 1, would be realized. And all the world would see the wisdom of God through them. Here's a problem. Just like in the book of Genesis, when mankind did, did not serve or fulfill the image-bearing uh, desire that God intended for them, so did the Israelites not fulfill the image-bearing witnesses that they were supposed to be to the world. And what's ironic is when you read the book of Isaiah, you have times in which God refers to his own people as witnesses, his own people. Isaiah 29, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 45, other passages that deal with the concept that they were not living up to the calling that God would have. They would become blind. And he says, in fact, I'm going to make the prophets blind. In other words, you're no longer going to have prophecies to tell you the path in which you should live. You're not going to have seers anymore. You're not going to have individuals. And so the irony is the people who are eyewitnesses become blind. They become deaf. And that becomes a strong part of the teaching of how God's people, instead of being true witnesses, are the very opposite of that. 
Well, fast forward to Luke chapter 7. Remember, um, we were studying out of Mark's gospel account, but in Luke chapter 7, John the Baptist, while in, incarcerated, incarcerated, that's a modern way of saying, when he's imprisoned, right, he is asking his disciples to go to Jesus and verify, is he the Christ? Is he the Christ? John's got questions. He was convicted at one time, but he's not right now. He's asking. Jesus says, you go tell John about the blind being able to see, the deaf being able to hear, and how the poor have the gospel preached to them. Jesus is going to be the chief witness who represents the true image of God. In fact, the Hebrew writer refers to Jesus as the express image of the glory of God in Hebrews chapter 1. Beautiful, beautiful text about how Jesus was epitomizing the idea of being a true witness to the world. That's why he's the light of the world, right? That's why he is the son of God. He represents God so well. And if you go and follow through this biblical narrative, just as mankind was supposed to be a witness for all God's creation, just as the people of God under the old covenant supposed to be a witness to all the rest of the nations surrounding them, likewise the Lord's church today is to be that witness. If you take time and read Ephesians 3 and Ephesians 4, in Ephesians chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 following, in fact, I want to read the, the passage there, and then I'm just going to refer back to Ephesians 4 and not really quote those texts there. But I want you to see how the Lord's church, even if it's not explicitly stated in this way, is or are to be witnesses to this world, right? Kind of like Matthew 5 or Matthew 6, where we are supposed to be lights on, uh, on the hilltop, spreading light to the darkened world around it, surrounding it. Same thing, same concept here in Ephesians chapter 3. I want to read verses 8 following. See if you can catch on to what, what Paul is saying when he refers to them if not explicitly, implicitly as witnesses. Paul says of himself in verse 8 of Ephesians 3, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given. What grace? That I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So here is the, the Gentiles. They're living in a dark world. They don't have the light of God in them. And Paul has this mysterious gospel which is going to be revealed to this lost and dying, darkened world. That he's going to preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages had been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what is he saying there? What he is saying is you're taking Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, free and enslaved, male and female. You're taking all these sinners and they are now representing the wisdom of God through Jesus Christ. That they're all one in Christ. That all these people that don't seem like they could ever get along. I mean, take the slave and take the slave owner. And they're together as one. Male and female. Jew and Gentile. And they're all one in Christ. And you're seeing 
These people who have been bought by the blood of Jesus, who have been saved by his grace, now representing to the world a testimony to what God has done for them through the cross. And you're seeing a lifestyle change in them. And what you're seeing, and that's where Ephesians 4 comes into picture here, is the application of this teaching in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians 4, when he says, after um, Jesus overcame death and, and had the victory of salvation for those who call upon his name, with these gifts, he gives some to be apostles and some prophets and some teachers and pastors, if you will. And, and all of these individuals make up all these gifts so that the church can be edified in its unity and be a perfectly mature creature in Christ. Let's talk about the church. A mature man in Christ, if you will. But it's the totality of all these individual Christians coming together. Imagine now, today, if I can modernize the scenario, instead of rich and poor necessarily or slave and free, how about we have all the people with the worst sins and all the people who are just morally, seemingly upright in our... Of course, we know that none have, can stand before God, right? We all sin and fall short. But imagine, from a perspective of, from society, all the riffraff and all the acceptables, but they're all one in Christ. Those who are great and wealthy and those who are, in, are homeless, one in Christ. People who have high standing for whatever the reason of high standing and those who have no standing all one in Christ. And through the oneness in Christ, bear witness to the whole world and to all of creation, not only on earth, but in the heavenly places. That's beyond the scope of our sermon for this morning, so we're not going to go there. But just imagine, that's the story of this eyewitness that is playing out right now. So where's your part? What's your part, brethren? Because that's the end all, right? You, you want to ask... Well, okay, that's kind of a neat thing, but what are we doing? If we look at passages like Luke 24, Acts chapter 1, Acts 22, Revelation 17, all these passages are tell telling us how we ought to live our lives just as brethren in the first century were living theirs. If we're supposed to be the image bearers, right? Because we are a new creation in Christ Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2, verse 8, 9, and 10. I just kind of paraphrased verse 10. If that's who we are, are we living up to that expectation? Are we walking worthy of the calling God called us to be as witnesses to this world? You see, if a witness is this concept that I experience God in this way, and I'm going to share my experience with others... It's not a matter that I have to convince them. The, the world can do that all on their own. They have their own choice. Every person can choose whether to accept the experience that you're having, the, the, the eyewitness account that you are testifying to, right? Here's what God has done for me. So I'll, I'll use myself as an example. Look at me before I was walking with God. Look at me now. And if you knew me before I was a Christian, you would say, what a change in Mitch. Wow, 180. And what's so cool about this, um, my wrestling coach in college does not know I'm going to be referring to him, but I just got a text uh, message from his wife, um, Eve, and, and they're going to Maui and whatever. So we're catching up. We're catching up on old times. And I remember that time before I was walking with God and how I was living during that time. And she's asking me, well, what are you doing now? I can't wait to respond to her. 
See, my life was so drastically different. And all my friends saw that difference, whether it's in the islands on Maui or in the mainland. That my life becomes an eyewitness account to them, the change that God has in me. And I don't care if you're raised in a quote-unquote Christian family. You may be raised in doing all the right things, but even you can be a witness in showing a heart that can leave God as many professed Christians can go back into the life and going, you know, there was a time when I just, I just wasn't walking with God. And some of you may always be walking with God, and you're still a testimony to all that God can do through your life on both ends, including someone like myself and everyone else from all different kinds of backgrounds and use all of us, right? Our incarcerated brethren, our homeless brethren, our studious brethren, our um, scholars among us and all the different kinds of brethren. And we can reach an entire world with all its diversity of backgrounds and be this wisdom to this world. And so our lives are supposed to be this testimony or this witness of the things that that we've received from other witnesses, right? Isn't that how the gospel works? I heard the gospel from Andy and Kathy Barrett. They heard it from Andy Dieselcamp up in Wisconsin. And Andy and the Dieselcamps got it from so on and so forth. And it just goes back all the way to the cross. That's only one way of looking at witness. The other one is, though, what is your life actually showing as witness? Jesus was talking about his life being a testimony. And we're going to look at that in the, the final slide. But I want you to see how we're supposed to be these witnesses. That's why the whole gospel in that great commission is go out into all the world. Why? You're going to bear witness to the world. And someone said, well, that's the apostles doing that. Well, guess what the apostles did? They shared it with others, and the others shared it with others, and so on and so forth until today. And that's why you have passages like Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Acts chapter 1, verse 22, and Acts chapter uh, 1, um, 1, verse 32 where this gospel is being proclaimed. In fact, that might have been chapter 2, verse 32, actually, where we are witnesses, the apostles say, in the sermon of Peter's. And so again, we're going to finish off with these. And I want us to use this final word, because this is the most wonderful, scary word in the Bible with regard to witnesses. So you've got the different Hebrew words, and of course, then you've got the Greek words in the New Testament, or the, even the Greek Old Testament translated from the Hebrew. And and what's cool is these words that are used right here and other places in the New Testament. So martus is the word in Greek, right, for witness. And one of those words is where we get the word martyr. The word martyr in some of your literal translations, instead of using the word martyr, it's actually witness. So some of you looking at your Bibles, more literal translations, we use the word witness. Stephen was the first witness. Some will say Stephen was the first martyr because it comes from this particular Greek word. The point is, ultimately our lives, if we are standing for Jesus, it may cost us our physical lives. And we have been, depending on how you look at this statement that I'm going to share, we have been blessed with peace while other places in the world, relatively speaking, are persecuted. 
Now, I know persecution is here in this country in the name of Christianity, and it continues to grow. I get that. Relative to other places in the world, we're at peace. I mean, we're here this morning. I don't think a single one of you thought that anything bad was going to happen to us this morning. It would be a rare thought. It may have, you may have to have an event that recently takes place for it to come into your mind. In other places, the fact that you would even say that you follow Jesus means you may die. You may be imprisoned. And so in Revelation chapter 17, I want to read this as the last one. It goes similar with Acts 22 in different context. Here's how this word is used. And I want us to, to finish with this concept to ask, how are you living your life as a witness to God? So Revelation 17, and I'll read the first six verses. Here is the Apostle John's vision. And in this vision has been this battle between the Son of God, referred to as a lamb in some cases in other areas, but he's the good guy. And then you've got his enemy, the harlot in this case, Babylon, which is Rome, I believe, in this context. Then one of the seven angels, verse 1, who had seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. In other words, her abominations are great. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of the names of blasphemy. Can you in my mind, I can imagine that, that adulterous woman in the book of Proverbs. All that she represents that is false and immoral. And she is playing the harlot with this beast and having seven heads and ten horns. Verse 4, the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. So she's got great stature, great prominence. And adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a cup full of abominations. And the filthiness of her fornication. On her forehead, a name was written. Mystery. Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, if you want to talk about someone's testimony, that's the testimony of this harlot. Not a good one. And scripture goes on to say of, of this, I saw the woman drink with the blood of the saints. Let it be very clear. We're talking about Christians whose lives are being taken because of their witnessing for Jesus Christ. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. I think sometimes Christianity in our modern American culture is so shallow that sometimes we lose focus on purpose. We just simply just go through life. Go to church services, leave churches. Go to church services, leave. Go to church services, leave. And it's like, what am I doing? When you live intentionally, intentionally, Wanting to be a representative, to represent who Jesus is in your life, you have purpose. And when you have purpose, people are going to love you for it, 
because they love God and they love his ways and they want his ways, including non-believers who become believers of whom Jesus prayed for. And you will make enemies. You will make grand enemies. Enemies who despise you. Enemies who may want you eventually dead. Ultimately, brethren, we have to have this kind of conviction if we're going to be growing and maturing in Christ Jesus. Because these individuals that live with this purpose are true witnesses. If I can use the term biblically speaking, biblically speaking, Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what we're supposed to be. He created us in the image of his son, in the likeness of his son, who is his express image, who testified to the whole world who he was. And we likewise, following in the footsteps of our Savior, must do the same. So I want to ask you, as we finish this morning, are you living this life? This is what was said of Jesus, and I want to apply it to you individually. Can it be said of you? If it cannot, you need to repent. I need to repent if I'm not living this way. For the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do testify about me. Your works are a testimony. They are witness to whether or not you are walking with God or walking without him. If you're walking with the harlot. Think about it. Reflect deeply upon your life. And brethren, if you're not walking worthy of the calling, please repent. Friend, if you're not walking with God, he welcomes you into his kingdom. He takes all of us, as wicked as we may think we are, his grace is greater than our sin. And he welcomes you just as we were talking about last week when we were talking about the prodigal son. He welcomes you with open arms. He will run up to meet you. And we as children of God, following in the likeness of our Father, will welcome you too if our hearts are right as God's. As God's children, we welcome you with the same open arms that our God does. But come to him. And then be witnesses for him. Go tell the world what God, good things God has done for you. How he made the blind see again. The deaf hear again. The lame walk again. Because that's exactly what we are without God. But he heals us completely through the blood of Jesus. And through him, all our sins can be forgiven. And we can be made in newness of life. And that's why we talk about being buried with him. That we may rise to walk in newness of life with him. So if you believe that Jesus is the Christ and willing to confess him as such and be willing to put your old man of sin, which is dead, put it to death. Give your life to God's, not your wills, but his will be done. He'll save you. Because he's a great and loving and forgiving and merciful, gracious God. You can have that. Brethren, if you need our prayers, you're struggling with sin, we pray for you, we pray with you, we love you. We want you to turn back to him if you need. Take this invitation as together we stand and sing.